Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. There are few instruments more powerful than the electric guitar. When the first primitive models appeared in the 1920s, no one really gave them much thought. The electric guitar was brand new, unproven, and completely lacking in any of the kinds of traditions and gravitas enjoyed by the piano, the violin, or any number of brass instruments. Besides, like all the other musical instruments in use, these required electricity, a concept that was still quite new. Electric household appliances were just starting to catch on, and even having a radio was still a novel thing. But over the next 30 years, the electric guitar found its place in music, helped along by technology, the need for volume, changing social conditions, and the ever-evolving musical tastes of the public. By the 1960s, the electric guitar was regarded as one of the most powerful musical inventions of all time. It was the sound behind rock and roll and all the social and cultural changes it created. It was the sound of freedom, of power, rebellion, joy heartache, aggression, and more. In short, the electric guitar defined music for the latter half of the 20th century. It's still an essential part of popular culture, and despite several challenges to its supremacy over the decades, it is not going away anytime soon. But how did a semi-obscure acoustic instrument get electrified in the first place? Who were the inventors and promoters? What technological innovations were needed? And of all the noisemakers you could choose, how did it become the foundation of rock and roll? This is the story of the electric guitar, part one. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. The Smashing Pumpkins with Rockets from the Siamese Dream album, featuring Billy Corgan playing one of his favorite Fender Stratocasters. It's hard to tell which one, but at the time, he had a 74, a 75, and a 78, as well as an Eric Clapton signature Strat. Meanwhile, James Eha is playing a Tesco K2L, 
which is different for him because he became a big fan of Gibson guitars, including a variety of Les Pauls, a Flying V, and a special edition SG from 1991. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and the next couple of programs are going to be pretty nerdy from a guitar point of view because we're going to take a very deep dive into the history and the ascent of the electric guitar. This also gives me an excuse to play some of my favorite electric guitar tracks from the history of alt-rock. The first thing you might ask is, who invented this thing? If you said Les Paul, you would be wrong. If you said Adolf Rickenbacker, you're about a quarter right. But hang on, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Stringed instruments go back thousands of years. Stone inscriptions seem to indicate the Babylonians were playing guitar-like instruments around 1300 BC. The word guitar is derived from a variety of sources, German, French, Spanish, Arabic, and ancient Greek. If we want to go that far back, the word was kithara and actually appears in the Bible four times, although that probably referred to a, a lyre rather than an instrument with a body and a neck. Over the years, there was the lute and the oud. By the 12th century, the Spanish were playing two types of guitars, each identifiable by the number of sound holes in a hollow body. By 1500, the Spanish had the vuela, which looked a little more like a modern guitar. But it took until around 1850 for the Spanish to create the instrument with the familiar lines and construction of a modern acoustic guitar. It was played by holding it over the knee, strumming or picking six strings with one hand over the body, and forming chords with the fingers of the other on the fretboard. And because of its history, this became known as the Spanish guitar. But there was another sort. Portuguese sailors brought something they called a cavaquinhos, which native Hawaiians loved, and eventually renamed the ukulele. By the late 1800s, European and Mexican sailors had brought Spanish guitars to Hawaii. The locals repurposed that guitar, tuning it so that a simple strum across the strings would produce a major chord without the need for messing around on the fretboard. And instead of using catgut, they used metal strings. To change sounds, a metal bar, or a piece of pipe, was slid along the strings. And since this was hard to do while holding the guitar vertically, players laid these Hawaiian guitars flat on their lap. Hawaii was annexed as a U.S. territory in 1900, and there was a brief craze for all things Hawaiian back on the mainland, and this extended to music. A number of musicians playing Hawaiian guitar became quite famous. In fact, Hawaiian songs sold more in the U.S. than any other genre in 1916. The interest in these guitars, soon called lap steel guitars, blew up through the 1920s, and several companies got into the business of making them. This attracted a guy from Texas named George Beecham. We'll get to him in a second. But first, let's take another guitar break. At the time Soundgarden recorded Black Hole Sun, Chris Cornell had three main guitars, a Gretsch Silver Jet, a Fender Jazzmaster, and a Gretsch Duo Jet. It's that last guitar we hear on this song, running through a Marshall JMP-50 half-stack, which provide the higher frequencies, as well as a Mesa Boogie dual rectifier solo half-stack for low-end grunt. The two amps were used in tandem along with a Leslie cabinet to get that distinctive warbling sound at the beginning. Let's get back to the story of George Beecham. He was a guitarist in the Hawaiian style who played around Los Angeles in the 1920s. If he recorded anything, no one knows about it. Next to him was his brother Alton. He played the Spanish guitar. Their group, the Dixie Boys, 
kept attracting bigger and bigger audiences. And this underscored the guitar's weakness. Volume. For years, its inherent quietness was considered very feminine. The Spanish guitar was one of the few instruments outside the piano that was considered appropriate for young ladies to play. And because it didn't produce much volume, it could really only be enjoyed in certain settings. George and his brother Alton wanted to fix that. So in 1926, they paid a visit to John Dopira, who made instruments. They had a request. Make their instruments louder. By this time, the guitar had actually become more popular than the banjo. So the time was ripe for some kind of innovation. Without getting too technical, the result was something called the acoustic resonator guitar. It wasn't powered by electricity, but it did feature a number of cones made out of aluminum that were affixed to the bridge, amplifying the instrument in the same way big acoustic horns were used on gramophones and phonographs. These resonator guitars proved to be quite popular, and they attracted the attention of a guy named Ted Kleinmeier, a hard-partying playboy who had just inherited a sizable amount of money. He floated Beecham and Dupira $12,000 to start a new venture. It was called the National String Instrument Company of California, and they began making more resonator guitars. One idea was to make the bodies of the guitars not out of wood, but out of aluminum. To cast those bodies, Beecham and Dupira contracted the process out to Adolf Rickenbacker. He was a Swiss immigrant whose wife was heir to the Standard Oil fortune. His first success was creating a process to manufacture plastic knobs for ovens. That eventually led to his own tool and die shop in Los Angeles, which is where he was found when the guitar guys came calling. And as the national string instrument music cranked out resonator guitars made of aluminum, George Beecham kept working on ideas to make the instrument louder. Having exhausted all acoustic ideas, George started investigating new approaches, and one of them involved using electricity. Guitar break time. When U2 goes on tour, The Edge takes nearly 50 different guitars with him. But back in the beginning, he only had a couple. If you watch the official video for this song, he's playing a black Gibson Les Paul through a Vox amp. But I've also seen him play this song on a Gibson Explorer. A couple of things had to happen before George Beecham could make his guitars louder. First of all, electricity had to become both widely available and acceptable everywhere. That happened by the 1930s. Second, someone had to invent some electronics that could take a quiet electrical signal and make it louder. That happened in 1911 when Lee DeForest unveiled the vacuum tube, and that became the foundation for something soon known as an amplifier. And third, someone had to invent something that could turn an electric signal back into sound. And that happened in 1921, when a co-development project between General Electric and AT&T resulted in the first speaker, a paper cone that reproduced sound. The first collision of these three inventions was radio, and then amplifiers that could turn any sound that had been converted into electrical energy back into sound. This translated into PA systems and sound systems for movie theaters. George Beecham realized that if this new technology could make a faint radio signal loud, why couldn't it do the same thing for a guitar? But how could you convert the vibrating string of a guitar into electrical energy so you could amplify it? Well, yeah, you could just stick a microphone in front of a regular guitar and run that through an amp, but mics got in the way and often resulted in wild feedback. There had to be something better. 
He realized that the amplifying sound of a guitar came from the guitar's body, sounds conferred to it by its strings. So why not just eliminate that second part? Why not just amplify the strings themselves? The answer was a device known as a pickup, which essentially is a wire coiled around a magnet. While work on developing pickups went as far back as the 1890s, no one had properly adapted it for the guitar until George Beecham. After much experimentation, a prototype was unveiled. It featured a round body attached to a long neck. It looked a lot like a banjo, but instead it acquired a different name, the frying pan. It really did look like one. When its steel strings were struck or picked or strummed, the vibrations created an electrical signal in that coil of wire around the magnet. That signal then traveled down a wire to an amplifier, which could be adjusted to whatever volume you wanted. Working with Adolf Rickenbacker and a few others, Beecham formed a company called Ropa Tin, and in 1932, started producing a model called the A25, the first ever solid-body electric guitar. Let's take a break here. Adolf Rickenbacker would later make and sell all sorts of guitars, including ones used by John Lennon. The distinct sound of a Rickenbacker guitar also became part of the sound of a young R.E.M. While the frying pan was the first commercially available electric guitar, it wasn't exactly a hit. A few people were impressed by it, but even fewer thought that it had any kind of potential or future. But they were wrong. Back with more in a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to part one of the story of the electric guitar. Like I said, the first electric guitar to go on sale was the Rickenbacker A25 in 1932. The A indicated that it was the company's first guitar, and the 25 was the length in inches of its neck. There was soon an A22, which was a better seller. Both guitars were sold with an amplifier, but because this was a depression, only 28 were sold in 1932. That, however, increased to almost 1,300 by 1935. So who was the first to play one of Rickenbacker's creations? It seems to be a guy named Gage Brewer, who bought an A25 on September 21st, 1932. In fact, he was the guitar maker's first ever customer. And on Halloween night, 1932, at the Shadowland Pavilion in Wichita, Kansas, he played it in public for the very first time. Because anything powered by electricity was so new and futuristic, the gig was also promoted as a scientific novelty, a new achievement in technology. And remember, those frying pan guitars looked weird. Shortly afterwards, a guitarist named Alvino Ray bought a frying pan and mounted it inside a wooden frame so it looked more like a regular Spanish guitar. He was bored with people asking him about that weird instrument he was playing. Rickenbacker's Electro String Music Corporation may have been the very first to sell electrified guitars, but he wasn't the only one. Companies with names like Gibson, Vivitone, Epiphone, Audiovox, Vega, and Slingerland got into the act. 
There were patent fights and arguments about who had the right to do what with the technology. And one guy tried to sue everyone, saying that he and he alone owned all the patents to the electric guitar. Still, the electric guitar was a little more than a novelty with the public. But within a certain community, its reputation was starting to grow. And much of that early attention was because of Charlie Christian, a black jazz player from Oklahoma. John Hammond, a talent scout for Benny Goodman's big band orchestra, arm-twisted Benny into giving Charlie a shot. Goodman wasn't really into it because, well, who the hell wants to hear an electric guitar, he apparently said. But because Goodman trusted Hammond, he agreed to at least listen to Charlie. He was blown away by his abilities on this new instrument, which was a Gibson ES-150 Spanish-style electric guitar. It used what was known as a bar pickup. It had a long hexagon shape. Unlike other guitars, this pickup sat under the strings, not over the top, which tended to interfere with playing the instrument. Once Charlie joined Goodman's orchestra with his Gibson, he became a star, the first ever guitar hero. Anyone who saw or heard Charlie with Betty Goodman's orchestra couldn't believe what they were hearing. Here's a sample of Charlie's playing. After Charlie Christian, demand for electric guitars went way up, and by the early 1940s, even more manufacturers were in the game. But the Gibson ES-150 was special. It cost $72.50 with a cord. If you wanted an amp and a case, the package was $155. That's almost $3,000 in today's money. But it was worth it, because for the very first time, an electric guitar could compete in volume and intensity with a saxophone probably the loudest instrument of the day. It began to have a profound influence on music. Sadly, Charlie didn't get to see what became of the electric guitar. He died of tuberculosis on March 3, 1941, at the age of 25. Still, the first guitar hero, right? Guitar break time. Dave Grohl has a lot of guitars and loves to use them all, but his absolute favorite seems to be a Gibson Trini Lopez ES-335, he has his own signature model now, but that's the guitar that inspired it. And an ES-335 has appeared on every single Foo Fighters album. This is the part of the story when we finally get to Les Paul. He was a country and jazz guitarist and also an inventor who was among the very first musicians to have a home studio. Through the 20s and late 30s, he started tinkering with guitar design, acoustic guitars. But in 1939, most likely after hearing Charlie Christian, he came up with an idea for his own electric guitar design. The result was something he called the log. It was a 4x4 piece of pine with two wings attached to it to make it look like a Spanish guitar. He attached a regular guitar neck to that body, along with a bridge and two crude homemade pickups. Unlike all the other electric guitars in the market, this one wasn't hollow. Its body was solid, and it sounded pretty good. Listen. Listen. 
Okay, that's not exactly Jimi Hendrix, but again, that recording was made in 1948. We hear the log on that track, along with another monster called the clunker, which was an old hollow body with a hole in the back that allowed Les Paul to lobotomize all the electronics inside. It was like a workbench he could play. People really made fun of the way the log looked. But at the same time, they realized that by making a guitar with a solid body, a guitar could basically assume any shape you wanted. That had potential. Les Paul went on to invent sound-on-sound recording, which is what we now call multi-track recording. He came up with that in the home studio in his garage. But he's most remembered for the guitar that bears his name, a guitar by Gibson. Les Paul took his ideas to a couple of different manufacturers, but only Gibson seemed interested. We'll come back to that a little later. It's now time for more guitar. Bob Marley was a fan of the Les Paul guitars Gibson eventually started making. His main instrument was a Gibson Les Paul Jr. He modified it a bit, and the sound it produced brought reggae to the world. It rules all creation, yeah, we're, we're charming. Bob Marley, a fan of the Gibson Les Paul Jr. We'll get back to Les Paul and his signature guitars in just a bit. But first, we have to take a detour to talk about a brilliant guitar designer who had no idea how to play the things that he made. We're back to part one of our story of the electric guitar. As a kid, Leo Fender was always playing with things like old radios and car parts. He loved to figure out how things could be taken apart, how they worked, and how they could be put back together. After he lost his job as an accountant during the Depression, he fell back on a part-time gig he had building PA systems for his musician friends. That brought in enough money for him to open a radio repair shop. One day, he met Doc Kaufman. He was a lap pedal steel guitarist, a Hawaiian guitarist, who once had a job with Rickenbacker. In fact, he was the guy who invented something called the Vibrola, which would later evolve into something we now call the Whammy Bar. Leo and Doc started building up lap steel guitars. Leo handled the electronics, and Doc took care of guitar design. But by 1946, Doc had decided to move on. And that's when Leo officially formed the Fender Electric Instrument Company in Fullerton, California. And by early 1948, the company had started working on a solid-body Spanish-style guitar. Leo's first target were the country and Western musicians who were into lap steel guitars. This is when he met a country picker named Merle Travis, who had a solid-body guitar built for him by a motorcycle parts designer named Paul Bigsby. That design inspired Leo, and by 1949, he had a prototype he called the Esquire. At $140, it was, you know, relatively cheap, and it sounded good. The Esquire was followed by the Broadcaster, which sold for $170. But when it went on sale, it turned out that another musical instrument company was using the word Broadcaster and threatened to sue. And that's when the guitar was renamed the Telecaster. It officially went on sale in 1951. The Tele has been compared to the Ford Model T. Just as that car brought motoring to the masses, the Telecaster made the electric guitar mainstream. It's really hard to overstate how popular this electric guitar became and how popular it still is today. Billy Joe Armstrong, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, Graham Coxon, George Harrison, Chrissy Hine, Johnny Marr, Alex Lifeson, Tom Morello, Bruce Springsteen, they all play Telecasters. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens more big names. The sound and the look and the feel and the versatility of the telly made it incredibly popular. 
One of the most loyal Telecaster players is Frank Black of the Pixies. He's favorite Telecasters almost from the very beginning. I should point out that the name Telecaster was deliberately chosen as an of-the-moment marketing move because television was the biggest thing in home appliances in 1951. Leo Fender was hoping to piggyback on the phenomenon, and it wasn't the first time he would do that, but I'll save that story for a minute or two. Hot on the heels of the Telecaster came the Fender Precision Bass. This, again, was a game-changer. Up until then, Musicians had to use the big stand-up double bass. These things were huge, as big or bigger than the person playing it. It had to be that large to produce deep notes. Physics, but just wasn't very practical. The Fender Precision Bass, or P-Bass as some called it, was the size of a Telecaster, as well as being of similar shape, making it a snap to carry around. And because it actually had frets on the neck, unlike a double bass, the player knew exactly where the fingers had to go. Bum notes became a thing of the past, hence the name precision. It wasn't the first electric bass, but it was the first one to attract any widespread attention. Things started slow. Musicians can be big into tradition, and this newfangled electrical thingy was a slap in the face. As far as we can tell, Lionel Hampton's band was the first to incorporate the P bass. It appears that his guy was named Monk Montgomery. Then came Bill Black, the bass player for Elvis Presley, although it is said that he initially really, really hated the thing because he just couldn't quite get the knack of playing it. But by the end of the 1950s, almost everyone had been converted to playing an electric bass. Rock and roll players, jazz artists, and country musicians. Countless rockers have played the precision bass. Sting, Paul Simonon of The Clash, Colin Greenwood of Radiohead, U2's Adam Clayton, Mark Hoppus from Blink-182, Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, and Dee Dee Ramone. That running thunk of all those Classic Ramon songs? That's a P-Bass. In 1953, Fender scored again. The company hired guitarist and designer Freddie Tavares. He was a pedal steel player. And I know you've heard his most famous work. It's right at the beginning of the famous Looney Tunes theme song. Freddie's mission was to put Fender back in front of Gibson, who had just released its Les Paul model. Don't worry, we'll, we'll cover the Les Paul in these episodes, so just hang on. Working together with some country guitarists, Freddie and Leo crafted a new guitar with a new shape that could be comfortably played both sitting down with the thing on your knee or nicely balanced while hanging on a strap around your neck. And the back of the body is slightly contoured so it fits nicely against the player's ribs. While the Telecaster is known as a single cutaway, the shape of the Stratocaster's body is a double cutaway. This makes it easier for the fingers to get way up high on the fretboard. All this was very revolutionary for 1953. Up until then, electric guitars were more or less crafted to ape the shape of a traditional acoustic guitar. This was something completely different. Oh, and it had three pickups, one more than the Telecaster. And there was a switch that allowed the player to pop between each of the pickups to achieve different sounds. Plus, the bridge could be very precisely adjusted for different types of strings and playing styles. 
And the Stratocaster had the first modern whammy bar, which was an improvement on the Vibrola that Doc Kaufman had come up with back in the 1940s. All right, so why call this new guitar a Stratocaster? More marketing. In the 1950s, there were airplanes called Stratocasters that were capturing the public's attention. So just as the Telecaster's name was from television, another new thing, so did the name Stratocaster. Strats became very popular very fast. Pretty much every picture I've seen of Buddy Holly holding a guitar has him holding a Strat. And over the years, Strats have been used by Eric Clapton, The Edge, Kurt Cobain, John Frusciante of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits, Bonnie Raitt, Pete Townsend, John Lennon, and gazillions more. Then there was David Gilmour's famous Black Strat, a model from 1969 that was used on every Pink Floyd album and tour until he auctioned it off for $4 million U.S. dollars. That guitar, Jimi Hendrix, set on fire at Monterey, a Strat, and Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstein guitar, that's basically a heavily modified Stratocaster. But let's get back to the 1950s and the early days of the guitar. Fender hired a guy by the name of Richard Monsoor to consult. As Fender's customer base grew further away from its original country market, the company wanted to make sure that they were covering all their bases. Monsoor, who used the stage name Dick Dale, was big into this budding thing called surf music. And with his help, the Fender Stratocaster became an essential part of that surf music sound. In fact, if you listen to songs like this, you could maybe hear the future of heavy rock. This, however, is from 1962. The 1950s and the early 1960s were a time of tremendous innovation for guitar makers. And we're not done. Fender introduced more instruments, some that failed, and others that went on to become iconic. Their arch-rival Gibson came up with the Les Paul. And that, I promise, is a story in itself, and we will get to it. And there were other musical instrument manufacturers who wanted in on the game. And boy, could they ever compete. All that and more when we get into part two of this history of one of the most powerful tools in the history of humankind the electric guitar. Meanwhile, you can access hundreds of these shows as podcasts through all the usual platforms, and I do mean hundreds of them, Apple Music, Spotify, you name it, all free, just download and go. Meanwhile, make sure you check out my website, which is a journalofmusicalthings.com, because it's always being updated with music news and information. It also comes with a free daily newsletter, so you won't miss anything. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok, and you can reach me anytime via alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll see you here next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 